Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. I want to ask you a rhetorical question. Who are God's chosen people? Is it the people who live in the Middle East and the borders of a country called Israel? Is it the people who live within the confines of the United States of America? No. No to both of those. God's chosen people are those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. They are the children of Abraham. And that's exactly what Paul is going to argue for forcefully in Romans chapter 4. He's going to say that even those who were ethnic Jews who did not have faith were not the children of Abraham. It is those who believe who are the children of Abraham. Now we're going to come over to Romans 9, 10, and 11 eventually. And we're going to talk there about the physical descendants of Abraham. And Paul's going to say in chapter 11, they're going to be grafted back in. But they're going to have to believe in Jesus first. They're not going to be grafted back in simply because of their physical birth. They're going to be grafted back in on the basis of the new birth. It is those who believe who are God's chosen people. It is those who believe who are the sons of Abraham. You do understand, do you not, that those who live in Israel today who have not put their trust in Jesus Christ are just as lost as the Muslims who live around them. They're not going to heaven by some special dispensation. They're not going to heaven at all unless they put their faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of people today are confused about that they don't understand there are even some who say oh well that what you're teaching now is replacement theology you're replacing the church with Israel I didn't do that God did it what I'm teaching you now is biblical theology that is that the people of God are those who have faith Dr. Tony Morita calls Romans chapter 4 a chapter about believing and belonging. And I, I, I like that. It's very good. If you believe, then you belong. If you believe, then you belong to the family of God. If you believe on Jesus Christ, if you trust him for salvation, then you belong to the family of God. Now, Paul has argued in Romans chapter 3, quite forcefully, that we are justified by faith alone. And so, it would be quite natural to look at some of the great heroes of the faith. He's continuing that discourse of the principle of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ Alone. So the ultimate question that he's dealing with in Romans chapter 4 is the way of salvation. And we must have no uncertainty about the divine plan of salvation. 
The apostle then uses the life of Abraham to demonstrate the grace of God in salvation. One Old Testament scholar has said that one of the errors of Jewish thinking in the understanding of the Old Testament is the view that Moses was the greatest Jew who ever lived. That oriented Jewish thinking toward a legalistic righteousness rather than a faith righteousness, which is the fundamental teaching of both Judaism and Christianity. Outside of references to the Lord Jesus Christ and excluding uh, verses that say, like Moses said, or Moses wrote, the names that are most mentioned in the New Testament are these in order. Number one, Paul. Number two, Peter. Number three, John the Baptist. Number four, Abraham. Now we might have thought that the other apostles are Mary would have been mentioned more often than the Old Testament patriarch. But that is not true. In chapter 4, Paul makes four important points. Well, he, he may make a lot more than that. I'm saying I'm going to deal with four this morning, okay? Preachers always say that. He makes four points. Well, he might have made 27, but I ain't got time to do 27. So four points that we're going to look at this morning. First, the Old Testament, the scriptures to him and to his readers in that day, teaches justification through faith on the principle of grace. That's the first eight verses. Secondly, the Old Testament teaches justification apart from any ordinances, even those divinely given. Verses 9 through 12. He's going to deal with circumcision here, the sign of the covenant. Now, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation, but we could, we could put baptism in there now. Justification is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. You can't add anything to it. You can't say, well, you're justified if you trust in Jesus Christ and then take the Lord's Supper. Won't work. Or then you're baptized. Won't work. Because justification, the principle of it, is that it is through faith by grace alone. Apart from any ordinance, any ordinance, whether it's man-made or divinely given. Thirdly, the Old Testament teaches justification apart from any legal works of any kind. Verses 13 through 17. And fourthly, the Old Testament teaches that the faith that justifies is in its essence a faith just like what Abraham exercised. Verses 18 through 25. Now, I know there are a couple of you here who are in a panic because you see we're going through all of chapter 4 in one day. We won't mention any names, Greg, Jim, but here's the deal. We're going to go through the fourth chapter and then we're going to come back and go through it, you know, a little slower later on. So take heart, take courage, my dear Baptist brethren. First of all, justification is through faith 
by grace. First eight verses. The chapter turns to the, the natural consideration of the question that may have been posed by a reader of Scripture, particularly a Jewish reader. They may have said, Paul, you have eliminated the law and works as a way of salvation, and therefore you've eliminated boasting. Uh, but what about the teaching of the Scriptures? What about the teaching of the Old Testament? Were not the people of the Old Testament the scriptures to the Hebrews were not the people of the Old Testament justified by keeping the law of Moses. The purpose of the apostle then in this chapter is to answer just such a question and to show that God's method of dealing with people in the Old Covenant is the same as how he deals with people in the New Covenant days. That it has always been this principle of faith according to grace. That is the only way of justification. Only way that's ever been. How people become right before God. And therefore, boasting is excluded. No one can brag. No one can boast. No one struts into heaven. Not me and not Abraham. Not anybody. The, the answer that he gives is a partial one to the problem that is raised in this opening question of the chapter. As a word of explanation, Paul points out in, in verse 2 that if, uh, if Abraham were justified by works, if that was the case, he could boast. But he couldn't boast before God. There's a difference in boasting before men and boasting before God. Uh, Paul's words not before God reject the boasting that carries with it the denial that works justified Abraham. Abraham had nothing to boast about before God because he wasn't justified by his works. He wasn't made right with God by what he did. Paul's aim here in chapter 4 is to show that what he is teaching is in complete harmony with the Old Testament scriptures. The relevance of mentioning Abraham being justified by faith is significant because the Jews of the first century believed and taught that Abraham was justified on the ground of his works. That is found in several places in the writings of the Apocrypha. For instance, in Jubilees, chapter 23, verse 10, we read this. Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Abraham clearly has ground for glory. Yeah, that's not true. That, that's why we don't have the Apocrypha in our canon. Because that's just simply not true. And a cursory reading of the book of Genesis will prove that to you. So now he comes to verse 3 and he says, let's look at the scripture. What does the scripture say? The point of the citation is simply this. 
The Bible doesn't support Abraham glorying in himself. For Abraham believed he did not achieve. He believed. And so Paul quotes Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted, credited, imputed to him as righteousness. If any man was known for his obedience, it was Abraham. I mean, when he was still Abram, and God told him to leave Ur of the Chaldees, he left. All through the scripture, we find him being obedient to the command of God. He's included in Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter, for his obedience to the word of God. And we might think, as the religious people of Paul's day did, that Abraham then had a great deal to boast about. He certainly was an exceptional man. But before God, Abraham had nothing to brag about. What did he do? He believed God. He believed God. And God counted to him at right, as righteousness. Abraham's boasting could only be in the Lord who had saved him. Verses 4 and 5 expound the point of the, of the citation given from Genesis 15, 6. The gracious character of human salvation is pointed out by the, the nature of grace and work. The apostle says, when a man works, his pay is not a gift. Whoever you work for, when you receive your check on Friday or once a month, they're not, they're not making a gift to you. You worked for it. It's yours. You earned it. Your pay is what you have earned for exchanging your labor for that. If it were possible to produce a character acceptable to God or to do works that God would accept, then human beings could come to the gate of heaven with great confidence, just like the way you step up to get your pay once a week or a month or ever how often you get it. You don't have to beg for it. You don't have to back up. Some people I've known should, but that's another story. But you have earned it. You are entitled to it. If it were possible... To do that with salvation, then we'd all strut into heaven. We would all have earned it. But in the case of salvation, that it, it's completely different. We have a man here who is justified before God, not by achieving anything, but by simply believing. There is a very important word in chapter 4. Uh, it is... It is used eight times in, just, in verses 3 through 11. It is the Greek word legizomai, and it is translated counted, credited, imputed. Paul lays great stress on the fact that righteousness is imputed to the believer. It is counted to him. That righteousness is the product of the merits of the sacrifice of our representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus has both earned righteousness for us and paid our debt of sin. He earned righteousness. He lived a perfect life. He was sinless. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and his neighbor as himself every moment of his human existence. He earned the right to enter heaven. And then he imputes that that he has earned to us. Also, he paid the penalty for our sin. What is the penalty? Death. To be forever separated from God. So all of our sin is counted to him. All of his righteousness is counted to us. And we go to heaven singing, In my hand no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That is all that we have. In verses 6 through 8, the final verses of this section, David is brought in, the great king of Israel, as being in agreement with Abraham so far as the method of salvation is concerned. It's not a, another illustration exactly on the level with, with Abraham because the rest of the chapter continues talking about Abraham, not David. But David's words, Paul says, are in harmony with the principle of God's dealing with Abraham. And again, the, the connection between Psalm, uh, Genesis 15 and Psalm 32, which he quotes here, in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, is the word legizomai, to credit or to count. It's found in both Genesis 15 and Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verse 1, however, deals with the negative side of the matter. That is the non-imputation of sin or forgiveness. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So it's evident that forgiveness somehow involves the imputation of righteousness. Now, one key to remember here is that sins are of two kinds. The sins of commission and the sins of omission. Things that you did you shouldn't have done and things you didn't do that you should have done. So, follow the logic. If sin cannot be imputed to a man, then he has neither omitted one commandment that has been required of him, nor has he committed one breach of God's law. So the non-imputation of sin doesn't leave him neutral so far as righteousness is concerned. Rather, it means that he is viewed as being righteous because he has not broken a law, nor has he omitted anything that he should have done. So the non-imputation of sin to David is the very same thing of the imputation of righteousness to Abraham. 
You got that? Nod your little heads. Okay, somebody did and they fell over. I don't know what you're going to do when you don't have a pew to lay down on. Anyway, secondly, he says, justification. Oh, you're going to have to start listening faster or we're not going to get through this today. Justification is apart from any ritual. He says that in verses 9 through 12. Imagine that the, the, the one who Paul is answering here uh, indicates that the, the, the way that Paul lays out the verses indicates that he is anticipating questions from somebody who knew the Bible. And so this person is going to say, Paul, haven't you forgotten something? Abraham was circumcised. And that right gives us, that ordinance gives us a right standing before God. Haven't you forgotten that? Paul, haven't, haven't you forgotten that, that Abraham was baptized? Just to put a modern vernacular to it. And the apostolic answer is simple. He says, true, that's true. Abraham was circumcised. But that event took place a long time after God had pronounced him righteous. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as, credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4.3, Genesis 15.6. But now, watch this. 24 years after Abraham's migration from Ur, 14 years after the covenant was ratified by the sacrifice in Genesis 15, 13 years after the birth of Ishmael, when Abraham is 99 years old, well past the age of being able to father a child, God appears to him and God says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And at the same time, God confirms the promises by the sign of the ancient covenant, of the sign of the ancient covenant, the sign of circumcision. The covenant was to have a sign, circumcision, suggesting the removal of the body of the flesh. It was a symbol of putting away the sins of the old life. In this timeline, a long time before Abraham was ever circumcised, he'd already been justified. <laughs> In the simplest terms, the objector has forgotten that Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. That's the same mistake that a lot of people make when they read the book of James. And they think there is some dichotomy between James and Paul. No, there's not. If you read the order in the verses in James, he talks about Abraham believing God and it counted to him as righteousness. And then he sacrifices Isaac, what? Proving his justification. Proving his works prove that righteousness had already been imputed to him. Works didn't save him. Works was not the root of his salvation, but rather the fruit of his salvation. In verses 11 through 12, Paul says, circumcision did not save. 
It was rather a token, a seal, a sign of faith righteousness because the patriarch had already been justified. The Jews in the days of Paul, by transferring the instrument of justification from faith to the sign of the faith, had made a grievous error in much the same way that people do today when they add an ordinance and say that this is required for you to be right before God. That's simply not true. The ordinance is simply a sign that you are right before God. All right. So the intent of the right is given in the remainder of the section. Without the right of circumcision, the patriarch would have been the father of Gentiles alone. But with the right, with the sign of the covenant, he becomes the father of the Jewish people as well, being the head of the clan, the head of their faith. The Gentiles are mentioned first because the plan of God to save the whole world, all kinds of men, comes before the plan to save Israel. Israel was a means to a universal end. Israel would be the way that God would bring this plan of salvation. Jesus was born a Jew, born under the law to redeem them that were under the law. In this way, unbelieving Jews of both Jew and uh, unbelieving Jews and Gentiles then are excluded. It's those who believe who are included. So any, any glory that the Jew might have, it's made null. It's voided. It's overthrown. In fact, it is not the Gentiles who must come to the Jews for salvation. Ultimately, it is the Jew who must come to the faith of an uncircumcised Abraham. They must believe God. You remember when Jesus said that Abraham had the gospel preached to him? You remember the New Testament saying that? Do you remember when Jesus told the Jews in John chapter 8, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it? And was glad? How was Abraham saved? By faith through grace. By faith in Christ alone. Abraham was not saved by his works. He was not, he was not saved uh, by what he achieved. He was saved by what he believed. His righteousness came by faith. That's the next point. It is apart from legal works, verses 13 through 17. The apostle argues that salvation is by grace. So he, he turns to, to the, the terms on which the promises were made to Abraham. He says that the patriarch came by faith, not by works of the law. Verses 14 and 15 says this is plain because the law annuls Faith and the promises. What was the law intended to do, according to the book of Galatians? What did Paul say the purpose of the law was? 
What did he say the purpose was and we looked at in chapters 2 and 3 of Romans? It was to show you you can't keep it. The law brings wrath. The law brings everyone, everyone under the wrath of God. The law causes us to look to Jesus and to flee to him. He says where there is no law, there is no transgression. Well, that's obvious. If there were no speed limit posted here in Athens, you could go as fast as you wanted. I used to love to drive in Clark County, Nevada, back in the 60s, because except for the city of Las Vegas, if you could go 200 miles an hour, fine, no problem. No, no, no speed limit, nothing, no, no speed limit whatsoever. The speed limit is all you can do. If there was no law, you couldn't break it. But the law has come, and the law brings wrath. Verse 16, we have one of Paul's most meaningful sentences, declaring that the dominant goal is that the promise might be sure to those who are the elect. For this to happen, the principle on which they come to God must be one of grace, because all are sinners and could never earn the reward. So he says the promise is according to grace. But what, what means or what instrumentality would be compatible with grace? And Paul's answer is that faith is the only thing that is harmonious with the principle of grace. For in faith, human beings do nothing but believe and receive the gift of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The divine intent is seen by looking at the last of the key words. Look at the word. Guaranteed. Grace guarantees it. <laughs> if salvation comes by works, how much do you have to do? What's enough? But if it comes by grace, it is guaranteed. All that legalistic righteousness can do is produce doubt and tension. Have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I been holy enough? Is, 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 is giving this much sufficient? Do I need to give more? Is working this many hours enough hours? What can I do? But grace through faith leads to assurance. It leads us to know that we have indeed been included in the family of God. Verse 17 confirms the fatherhood of Abraham over both Jews and Gentiles, in support of which text Genesis 17, 5 is cited. And the final verses here underline the creative power of God. It goes back to creation, ex nihilo. Uh, I've made you the father of many nations uh, in the presence of the God in whom we believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The universe is created, we say, out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. God made Abraham a father out of nothing. His body was as good as dead. 
100 years old. Sarah's in her 90s. Most people don't have children at that age. You do understand that, don't you? If they did, they'd be in a bit of a panic. I mean, most of the time, God doesn't give children to women over 50 because they'd lay them down and forget where they put them. I'm over 50. I know that to be a fact. So, in essence, like he did in creation, bringing everything out of nothing, God made the promise to Abraham sure by bringing it out of nothing. His body as good as dead. Finally now. See, we've gone through here. My goodness, it's only, it's only 1230. We're good here. Uh, look at your little watches. Finally, he says, faith that justifies is like Abraham's faith. Verses 18 through 25. Paul has made the point, quite cogently I believe, that the Old Testament people were justified in exactly the same way as the New Testament people. And then it would be expected that some would say to him, but Paul, just exactly what is saving faith? You're saying that a person is justified by faith not by works of the law, but what do you mean by faith? What is the kind of faith that justifies? And his answer is unswerving trust in the God of the resurrection because that was exactly Abraham's faith. He believed God. He believed what God said. When Abraham was 99 years old, God appeared to him and renewed the covenantal promise that he'd made back in chapter 12. He told him from the womb of Sarah would come one that would be a line that would ultimately bless the whole earth. The one seed, Jesus Christ. The impediments to Abraham's faith were large and imposing he was beyond any human expectation of ever fathering a child by Sarah, and yet he believed. He trusted God. The encouragement to faith is found in verse 20, the promise of God. The promise of Genesis 12, the reference to them in Genesis 15. By the grace of God, Abraham was enabled to believe the promises of given to him and the result was he gave glory to God the heart of the validity of justification by faith alone leads to glorification of the triune God that's why any plan of salvation that involves the free will of man cannot be in harmony with God's plan of salvation Verse 21, the second of the encouragements to faith, the character of God. As Paul puts it, he's fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. His promises are the ground of our hope. And his powerful faithfulness to the word provide that additional support. I think perhaps the best definition of faith given in the Bible is in Acts chapter 27, verse 25. Remember where Paul is at sea and they're in a terrible, terrible storm 
And he says to the men this, So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. That is faith. Simply believing that things are and will be just as God says they are. So what is faith? What is biblical faith? Simply taking the word of God at face value. Simply believing God's word. That is faith. It is not delusion. It is not the presumption. It it is not credulity. It is not akin to the mumbo-jumbo of witch doctors. It is simply believing God's word. So do you believe? The faith of Abraham was not merely in the promise of God, but it was also in the God who had promised. Verse 22. That, you have the divine response to the faith of the patriarch. That is why, he says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He not only believed the promise of God, he believed the God of the promise. He makes the, the story then that what is written for Abraham was not just for his sake alone, it's for ours as well. The imputation of righteousness is secured by us in the exact same way Abraham got it. Believing God's word. Faith in the God of Abraham. Here's the belonging. We belong to the family of God. Why? Because we've done some great work? Because we performed some ordinance? No, because we've believed. We believe and therefore we belong. It is by faith on the principle of grace. The essence of saving faith is to be found in believing him who raised up Jesus from the dead. The firm conviction that the promises of God in Christ are true. The last verse is probably a a formula that was very popular then. He says of Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The death of Christ took place because of our sins, our trespasses. His resurrection took place because justification had been completed. How can you be certain that God accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross? How do you know it was acceptable? He raised him from the dead. By the power of a sinless life, Jesus Christ came from the dead. Proof positive that God accepted the sacrifice, that his wrath had been propitiated. And that when we believe, we have eternal life. In God's sight, the death of Jesus provides justification for all who will believe. And the resurrection is the receipt for the satisfaction of every claim of holiness against those for whom Christ died. The resurrection is God's amen to the it is finished 
of Christ on the cross. When we look at the cross, we see justification completed. When we look at the empty tomb, we see justification accepted. Who are the chosen people of God? Who are the children of Abraham? Those who believe. Those who belong. And they belong because they believe. They are God's people. They are the people of God. All who believe. Let's pray. Our Father and our